I'll tell you this. Uh, I did mm-hmm. not actually even view it as unfortunate. Uh, you just thought for, it was okay. I, well, see, because I didn't understand that there were actual differences in teaching until I was in late high school and I began working at a Christian bookstore, and then you get you know, sort yeah. of everybody coming in. And, yeah. you know, it's the Christian bookstore life, you know, about once or twice a day, a crazy guy will pull you to the side and tell you what God has revealed to him. Hello and welcome to another revelatory episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We are with the Coming Home Network. Please visit us at chnetwork.org. We're an apostolate that's been around for a quarter century uh, helping people with questions about the church and uh, figuring out various aspects of what this whole Catholic thing is. Ken was a Baptist. I was a Nazarene Free Methodist. Uh, We've both come from kind of wild backgrounds and ended up Catholic. And maybe you're in some background that's not even in one of those categories, and you have questions, we would love to hear from you. Come visit us also in our online community at community.chnetwork.org. Ken, are you ready for another week on authority? Yeah, I'm kind of pumped up again. You know, I uh, during the week when I'm working through this material, sometimes I get nervous and I think, wow, I don't even know what I'm saying. This is not going to come together. But by the time you and I uh, begin to record each week, I'm kind of on fire well, these, this I, one's, these ideas are so powerful to me, and so I'm I'm excited. Not just powerful, but scary. I got to say that um, the the whole stuff that we did on sacred sacred scripture as a leg of the stool, totally part of my background. Tradition that was even part of my background as well. But what we're going to say today about the authority of the church mm-hmm. that was out of my comfort zone, big time. Yeah. So, yeah, um, let's dive right in. Okay, let me recap quickly. Then, all right. Um, you and I have been looking at how scripture, sacred scripture, and sacred tradition relate to one another in the Catholic worldview, and how it makes sense that they would relate in the way that they do. And let me run through it quickly. It makes sense, this is last week's recapped, it makes sense that the apostles would have wanted, that they would have expected the early Christians to hold fast to everything they had taught them, whether by word of mouth or by letter. It makes sense that the early Christians would have read the letters they received from the apostles in the light of everything that they already knew from the time the apostles had been with them, teaching them by their word, their preaching, by their example, and so forth. It makes sense that over time, as disputes arose and the apostles were no longer around to resolve them, it makes sense that the church would have looked for the truth, not only um, to what the apostles had written, but to the most ancient churches that the apostles had founded. And then finally, it makes sense that when super-duper important issues arose that really had to be solved in the early history of the church, it makes sense that the church would not have advocated that every Christian figure it out for himself or herself, or even every local congregation, or even every bishop. It makes sense that they would have looked to the bishop's the ordained successors to the apostles in union to examine scripture, to examine the tradition, to pray for the leading of God's spirit and make the decision for the church. 
That makes sense on another level too, Ken, because that's how denominational Christianity operates today. Now, absent the apostolic okay. succession part, what happens when a dispute arrives in, in the uh, Southern Baptist Conference, right? Or yeah. uh, in my situation as the Church of the Nazarene, I've been at district assemblies where you gather everybody together from all the churches. It's not all the churches in Asia Minor and North Africa and everything else, but it was all the churches in our section of the United States. And based on you know, what we knew to be true about God, we yeah. settled the dispute. This is how denominational yeah. Christianity Christianity operates in the present. So it makes sense it would have operated like that back then. Yeah, and the difference is that those denominations are not claiming to speak with the authority of Christ. And any individual in that congregation, if they say you've made the wrong choice, well, they just switch over to another denomination. So, yeah, yeah. But I understand what you're saying. It's, it's simply the case that this is the way it happens, even even for uh, Protestant denominations that that in theory, well, not in theory, in reality, reject formally the idea that there's an authoritative magisterium, and would state formally that it's that it's each Christian's right to and study scripture. And I guarantee you, because yeah. I were I was there, they prayed to the Holy Spirit for guidance in right, the process. Right. So. Yes, I know, which is another interesting point. Okay, but all of this makes sense. I, I'm stopping myself because that's a good point that I could go that's off a, on for a little it's while. another rabbit hole, okay, but we, yeah. we move on. We okay, move all on. this makes sense is what I'm saying. It's reasonable, the Catholic view of how Scripture and tradition function together. And this is exactly how the Catholic Church understands how Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium function together to preserve the apostolic faith and to transmit it intact. Quoting again from the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation from Vatican II, Listen carefully. Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it was put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Again, I think one of the most beautiful short descriptions I've ever read, all the way back to my first, the first day in which I had faith in Christ, is, is right here in a Catholic document. It's the speech of God, Scripture, as it was put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. And sacred tradition transmits in its entirety the Word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit, it transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. But the task of authentically, and many say better translation would be authoritatively of the Latin word here, but the task of authoritatively interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This teaching office is not above the word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It draws from this one deposit of faith everything which it presents for belief as divinely revealed. It is clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred scripture, excuse me, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the church are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others, working together, each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, they all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. You know, we could do a whole episode on every single individual sentence in every that chunk phrase. From, 
from Dave Erbum. Uh, you know, yeah. even something as simple as the teaching office is not above the Word of God, but serves it. Um, a lot of people don't realize that's how the Catholic Church thinks about yeah. Yeah. the magisterium. In fact, we are going to tear this thing apart phrase by phrase by phrase. But, you know, one thing, uh, you know, one foot down, what does it say? You know, one foot down, one foot up, all the way to London town or whatever. <laughs> it's got to go bit by bit by bit. But, but I want to lay out the vision. This is the vision. Okay, now you and I, Matt, have spent our time pr primarily so far talking about Scripture and talking about tradition. What I want to do today, then, is begin to focus on the magisterium, on the church as an authoritative teacher, okay? On the church as an authoritative teacher. And what I want to do is argue, as we did last week, I want to argue that it makes sense. It makes sense to think that the church our Lord Jesus founded would be this kind of church, that it would be a church endowed by the Holy Spirit with the ability to speak with Christ's authority, that it would be the kind of church that the Catholic Church has always claimed to be. It makes sense, okay? So what I want, what I want to do today is I'm going to lay out six arguments that drove me to this conviction, and I'm sure drove you to the conviction as well. Yeah, Six and just arguments. as a little backdrop for that before we get into it, and I'll, I'll sure. say a lot more about this later, um, but it, even asking this question in this way was not something that I did uh, until, you know, kind of my very end of my search that led me to the mm. Catholic Church, because what I was asking the whole time is, what is the correct interpretation? Because you've got all these interpretations swirling around. I was not asking the question, who has the authority to say Right, right. What is the right, right interpretation? Right. And that's 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 the question behind all of it, um, as you're about to get into in six times over. So no, that's really good. And I didn't think that that way either. I didn't think. Does it make sense that the church would be constituted in the way that I believed it was? Okay, but, but anyway, so six arguments then that drove me to the conviction that our Lord had to have established an authoritative teaching church. First of all, is this. It makes sense to think that the church our Lord established would be an authoritative church because of how the church is described in the New Testament. The church is described, first of all, as the home of the Holy Spirit, as the very fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. And I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul writes, he describes the church as built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place of God. Okay, the church is where the cloud of God's glory resides. But the church is also described in the New Testament as the bride of Christ, for whom Jesus laid down his life. The bride that St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that Jesus, quote, nourishes and cherishes as a man does his own flesh. In other words, Jesus and his church are depicted in the New Testament as being one, bride and bridegroom. Okay, so the church is God's temple, the church is Christ's bride, and then the church is also described as Christ's own body, organically connected to him as the body is connected organically to its head. Christ's own life flowing in and through the church. Again, Jesus and the church are one. 
And just to go back to that that passage you were reading from Ephesians sure. in chapter 2 about it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone, and then we get into that image that's used in so many weddings from Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 with, with the church as the bride of Christ. I always saw Ephesians as being strong on grace. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. I didn't understand how strong it was on ecclesiology. Like, yeah, that's true. That's I, I just true. didn't – that's just not what I – that's not the way that I thought of the church. Um, I think of it that way now, mm-hmm. but that's not the way I thought of it at the time. And yet when you think of it, what Ephesians is all about is Paul wanting to explain this mystery that had been hidden forever, that the Gentiles and the children of Israel would be one body. So it, it, it's much about ecclesiology. But add these together, Matt. It, it, it made sense to me to think that the church described as the very fulfillment of the old covenant type of the temple, the the home of the Holy Spirit, a church described as Christ's own bride, as Christ's own body, would be a church given the ability by the Holy Spirit to speak with divine authority. And so it should be no wonder that in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul also describes the church as, quote, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And the Greek word used there, translated bulwark, is a word that can be translated basis or foundation. foundation. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Okay, so that's argument number one. Argument number two is this. It makes sense to think that the church Jesus founded would be an authoritative church because of the extraordinary promises that he made while on earth. Jesus promised to lead his disciples into all the truth. John 16, 12, and 13, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Jesus promised to build his church on a rock. Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death or the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus promised to be with his church forever, and he promised this, Matt, as one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth had been given. Matthew. This is his last shot in the book of Matthew, right? This is what he says leading into the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority now since the resurrection in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. I will be with you always to the close of the age. Let me put it like this, Matthew Swaim, Esquire. Does it make sense to think that Jesus would put this all together, that Jesus would rise from the dead, victorious over the powers of hell and death, that he would ascend to the right hand of power, that he would take his seat on the very throne of heaven, the right hand of the Father, that he would send his Holy Spirit into his disciples to lead them to all the truth, and that he would promise as one who had been given authority in heaven and all authority in heaven on earth, that he would promise to lead them always into the truth. Does it make sense to think that he would not intend to preserve this church in the truth? That he would just, in the end, hand them the Bible and and let them fracture into a thousand uh, denominations? No, it does not make sense. You know what? It, it, maybe if there was some kind of precedent for this in the Old Testament, like maybe in the post-Solomonic Reformation, mm-hmm. right, when the kingdom splits in half 
and then you've got Wicked King Manasseh, and you've got all the bad guys. A few yeah. good kings sprinkled in. You got exile after exile. It makes sense that God would be like, you know what? I'm done with you guys. I'm going to pick the Persians as my chosen people now. Yeah. Why but, would the God, if this is the fulfillment of God's promise to that group of people who failed on so many levels, then why would Jesus let it fail after a generation yeah, in the case and, of the church? And you and I have spoken much um, in other in previous uh, series that we've done about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is type and shadow. The New Covenant is the Holy Spirit-filled fulfillment, the, the reality so it's, it's, it's not going to be the same as a it bunch of people. It is the kingdom of God at hand, yes. right? <laughs> it's, the, it's the kingdom <laughs> of God at hand. Okay, argument number three. Third, it makes sense that the church founded by our Lord would be an authoritative church because of the importance that is placed in the New Testament on Christians being united as one. Let me say that again. Because of the importance that is placed in the New Testament on Christians being united as one. I don't know about you, but as a Protestant, I was so used to the idea that Christianity existed in this fragmented, splintered state that it didn't really even bother me, I, I don't think, for years and years and years. I, I knew that the church over time had split and fragmented into Catholic and Orthodox, and then in the 16th century to this ever-increasing flood of denominations and sects, Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, Nazarene, on and on and on and on and on. I knew that, and I knew these churches contradicted one another on many points of doctrine and even on moral teaching. I viewed this, I don't know about you, Matt, but I view this as unfortunate. It wasn't something that made me happy, but as something for which there really was no answer. After all, these churches simply don't agree with one another. They've studied the Bible, they've prayed for the leading of the Spirit, and they don't agree. Now, yeah. If, well, I'll tell you this: uh, I did mm -hmm. not actually even view it as unfortunate. Uh, you just thought for, it was okay. I, well, see, because I didn't understand that there were actual differences in teaching until I was in late high school and I began working at a Christian bookstore. And then you get, you know, sort yeah. of everybody coming in, and yeah. you know, it's the Christian bookstore life. You know, about once or twice a day, a crazy guy will pull you to the side and tell you what God has revealed to him, and right. you start to realize that there are differences as you're organizing books. I thought that it was just a matter of taste, right? That, you know, one side style of my family. Of preaching, style of music or whatever. Style of music. One side of my family is more into kind of yeah. like piano revivalist hymns. The other's more into like sort of more regal, you know, uh, you know, organ music, uh, you know, whatever it, whatever it is. I didn't realize this. And, and this comes into uh, some conversations um, that I've been having recently, a few mm -hmm. of them actually, with people who are like, well, one person says this and one person says this. I'm not sure. Um, these seem like good ideas, but I'm not sure how to choose. I thought maybe maybe we just can't know. And if well, we can't yeah. know, then is any of it true? The You know? You know, I can see that because you say until you were in high school. In other words, when you were young, you didn't realize when you were very young. I mean, a lot of people when they're in fifth grade, I got to let you know, but you just don't realize all the theological discrepancies that exist out there. But you didn't know, you know, well, I knew, you know, as an adult, I knew that there were four or five different views of how the church should be organized and run. That, there, that people disagreed on how we are saved. People disagreed on whether salvation is something, once you have it, you have it forever, or whether it could be lost. People disagree on whether baptism and the Eucharist were just symbols or powerful sacraments. There are, there are important differences, 
and denominations and sects that contradict one another on all sorts of matters. And, you know, I guess that what I thought, you know, before I began to look at Catholicism, would be something like this. You know, if there existed some spiritual authority on earth, if there existed some authority on earth outside the pages of the Bible itself, led by the Holy Spirit to preserve and transmit the authentic apostolic faith that could unite all Christians, well, that would be great. But it doesn't exist. And so division is simply, you know, what you see is what you get. It's just the way it and, is. But implicitly, and, and not to jump too far ahead, implicitly we were mm. saying we did believe such a thing exists because we all held to one book that that yeah. church helped yeah. put into canon. But that's, yeah. that. If for more on that, go back and watch our whole thing on Sola Scriptura. Yeah, you and know, also the last... Hours of entertainment. Last couple of minutes of our talk today, too. We'll, we'll come back to that. But so, so for me, Matt, it wasn't until I... It wasn't really until I began to wrestle with the claim of the Catholic Church to be that spiritual authority that is needed that the prayer of Jesus recorded in, Matt, in John 17 began to catch my eye in a new way. This is where Jesus said... He's praying uh, on the night of his arrest. He says, I do not pray for these only, referring to his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, I in them and thou in me, that they may, may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. And I'm reading this kind of with new eyes, and it's beginning to strike me. Here's our Lord in the upper room with his disciples. He has just instituted the new covenant in his body and his blood. In a couple of minutes, he's going to be leaving that room to go to, go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be arrested. I mean, these are some of the last recorded words that we have in our Lord's life. And the, what does he have his mind on? All of this stuff about unity, that they may be one, may they become perfectly one, even as we are one. He's thinking about unity. He's praying about the unity of the church. And why? So that the world may know that you have sent me. So that the yeah. world may know that you have loved me. It's like the unity of the church would be a primary evidence of the truth of the entire thing, of the entire worldview. And yeah. of course, that has its negative side because what message is sent to the world when you say, hey, become a Christian, and, and they're able to say, you know, what, you know, Baskin and Robbins, 31 flavors, you know, which one are you talking about? You know, I become a Nazarene, do I become a Catholic, what do I? Yeah, I remember being part of a running club uh, at one point in this area around Washington, D.C., a lot of people run, that's that's their church, right? They go mm -hmm. running, and it, we would run on Sunday mornings, of all things, uh, but I remember being in a conversation after we'd just finished a big run, and, you know, I'd sort of struck up, uh, you know, a friendly uh, you know, relationship mm -hmm. with a few of the runners, and one of them was was Jewish, and he was making just a joke. He says, "I don't understand why you Christians are all divided into Protestant and, and Catholic, and uh, you know, to, aren't all Christian Heinz varieties?" Right? Yeah. He's like, to me, like a Christian's a Christian. You guys all basically believe the same thing. And this Baptist lady next to me is like, "No, we do not." <laughs> you know, and it was like well, she said that. She yeah, said and, that. and it was funny to me because it was like, it, but it was also sort of sad. I thought, well, obviously. To this guy outside, he thinks mm -hmm. we're a lot more unified than we are, and here he has evidence that we're not unified. What in the world would convince him to look any deeper into the matter? Yeah, because he just, just seeing that little exchange, he just sees this fragmented thing. Yeah, and and my point is that I was beginning to see that the New Testament 
emphasizes the unity of the church, the oneness of the church. In fact, another passage that caught my eye was 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, where St. Paul is writing to the Greek city of Corinth to the Christians there. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. I mean, look, he's piling up phrases to emphasize this. And I, I began then really, again, reflecting on the Catholic Church's claim to be the kind of church that is needed if we're to be one. It began to bother me that there were divisions in the church. It began to not make sense to me that the church should be divided like this. It, it began, in fact, to seem rather obvious to me that our Lord would not want his church fractured into this vast number of competing sects and denominations, contradicting each other, stealing sheep from one another, each of them presenting a different version of what the apostolic faith is all about. And, you know, again, we're talking about the the logic of it, and it was a sort of dawning on me. Didn't Jesus establish one church? Didn't he talk about one flock with one shepherd? Didn't he establish one bride? I mean, isn't he... He's, a, he's not a polygamist, right? So it's one bridegroom, one bride, one head, one body, one spirit coming to inhabit the one church. And didn't the One Lord, teach? one faith, one baptism, yeah. all of it. Otherwise, I mean, does it make sense that Christ would say, all right, I know I've said a lot of things here. You guys may have disputes among yourselves as to what I meant by them. I'm going to leave it to each individual new Christian to figure out which group of you is right or if yeah. they don't trust any of you to start their own group. Yeah, or or just decide I'll just be a nun, you know, or, or whatever, right. you know. Yeah. Didn't the apostles present one teaching? I, I, I've i heard people say, oh, no, you know, Galatians, where Peter and Paul get into it, you know, maybe, you know, suggesting that maybe even the apostles went out and taught 12 different versions of the faith, you know? No. But here's the thing. Here's the logic as it comes down. In order for the church to be one church, it would have had to have been established with some principle of authority outside the pages of the Bible alone and each Christian's ability to read the Bible and pray for leading and whatnot. You're Jesus telling would me? have had to have established the church with the ability, with the principle, the ability by the Holy Spirit to preserve the apostolic faith and transmit it. Are you saying that the American spirit is not enough to hold us together as the United States of America, that we need some sort of governing authority and foundational documents in order for this thing to work? Don't even say that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, have you looked at Twitter lately? Well, uh, don't even not say if I that. can help it. Don't even say that. Okay. But, but the idea, you get the, you get the sense that like mm-hmm. just mere people being in the same mood on the same day is not enough no. for this thing to work. It's not enough. No, it's not enough. Christ church has to be a church with divine authority in order for the church to ever be one. Okay, so that's the third argument, okay? First of all, it makes sense that the church would be authoritative because of the way the church is described. Secondly, because of the promises, the extraordinary promises that Jesus made. And then third, it makes sense that the church Jesus founded would be an authoritative church because oneness would be impossible without it. Fourth, it makes sense that the church Jesus founded would be an authoritative church because without this, there could be no certainty of faith. Something you touched on a moment ago. Without an authoritative church, no Christian could ever know if he was in the right denomination 
and in possession of the apostolic faith. And I asked the question last week, and I will repeat it again now. What exactly would be the point, Matt, of the Holy Spirit leading the apostles into all the truth so that the apostles then could go out and preach the truth and lead the early Christians into all the truth in order that we can stand here 2,000 years later scratching our heads and saying, well, no one can know for sure whether it's the Baptist or whether it's the Anglicans or the Orthodox or the Episcopalians, who knows? What would be the sense of it? If it's Scripture alone, I mean, if that's the truth, if it's Scripture alone and the right of each Christian to decide, if Martin Luther was right when he said, each Christian is his own Pope and church, quote, unquote, if no church exists on earth with any more authority than any other church to pronounce on the true teachings of the faith, how is Fred, who works at the local bowling alley, how is he to ever know whether he's in the right denomination or he's in a denomination whose statement of faith is apostolic? How's he ever to know? He can't know. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of logic here. Logically, he cannot know. Yeah, and, and, and logically, the Christianity you're left with is not one based on authority, but based on whoever's the smartest and prays the hardest. Yes, and or or even whoever is the most clever, right? And uh, again, I if all these people, like I said at the beginning of this, if the people at, at our district assembly were praying for people to to you know to be guided by the Holy Spirit and all this, if the Mormons who visited me, uh, you know, before we read the Book of Mormon together, are saying you know to God, you know, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide yeah. us to understand the things that you've. That we're that we're reading today, everybody's praying to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and you know what? We could go off into sola scriptura here a bit too, because it, it, it's often struck me sola scriptura it teaches that we should only believe what can be shown to be clearly taught in Scripture. Okay, sola scriptura doesn't say we should believe whatever the Holy Spirit leads us <laughs> to believe. You know, and and if you were at a Bible study, if I was at your Nazarene Bible Bible study. And, and you were teaching, you know, you know, the book of Philippians or whatever. And if I raised my hand and I said, well, your interpretation is wrong because the Holy Spirit leads me to say that. I got a word, right. Brother Ken. <laughs> yeah, you would have thrown me out of the room. Sola Scriptura is Maybe. about proving it from the pages of the Bible and believing only what can be clearly shown. And yet, you know, yeah, we pray well, that the Holy Spirit led us. And this is what but we, we all know, Ken, that Sola Scriptura is uh, eisegesis thinly veiling itself as exegesis. So, okay, that's how it goes. But then the, the fourth argument then, just to repeat it, is this. It makes sense to believe that Jesus would have established an authoritative church because if not, there's no certainty of faith. No one, and I'm not just talking about Fred at the bowling alley, but any, Sophie the washerwoman, Ken Hensley, the, you know, the guy, no one could know for sure with certainty whether he was even in the right denomination he would end up just floating into a denomination because he, uh, because a teacher told him something or because he had friends or family. And he spent his whole life just, what you know, well, maybe my denomination is not even right, but I'm not in a position to judge it. Okay, fifth. Fifth argument. It makes sense that the church Jesus founded would be an authoritative church. And now we move forward a slight bit. And it makes sense that in particular, the Holy Spirit would work through the bishops to provide that authority because this is precisely the model that we find in the New Testament 
itself. We mentioned this last week, and I just simply want to mention it again. I'm talking about the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, when the church faced the first serious theological dispute that they had to deal with, and that is certain believers from Jerusalem coming down to Antioch and saying, Gentile believers must be circumcised and keep the customs of Moses. Essentially, they must become Jewish proselytes in order to be saved. The elders of the church, the leaders of the church, the apostles met in Jerusalem, and they prayed, they spoke, they debated, and they came to a decision, and they issued a letter, which I think you could transpose the word decree, okay? They issued a decree to the churches. And I didn't read it last week, but but I want our hearers, our viewers, to hear the letter. Notice the mindset, notice the spirit of this letter that was sent out to all the churches in response to this council or um, as the as the outcome of this council. The brethren, both the apostles and the elders to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greeting. Since we have heard that some persons from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things which they go on to outline. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. Isn't that, isn't that kind of beautiful? In some ways, yes, until you figure out they're talking about circumcision, and then it's a little <laughs> bit less beautiful. But it strikes no, it's me beautiful too. because they're telling them they don't have to. Right. But at the same time, they don't say you're not allowed to. Yeah, right, right. right. There's this sense in here that they've, they've kind of come to this reasonable conclusion. They're, they realize it's not necessary for salvation, that we don't pr- want to yeah. place unnecessary burdens on people. Yeah, you don't um, have to. There's, they're, t- they're making a, a, a pronouncement on faith. They're also making a pronouncement on discipline. On practice, um, yeah. On practice. It's, it's, it's this whole—circumcision is an interesting test case because it covers a whole bunch of different understandings of, of, of what the church is in charge of talking about. But the thing that's beautiful about this is the model that it sets. This model of when we have a difficult theological issue, we gather the ordained leadership of the church together— at the time, the apostles, the leadership of the various churches, and we debate it through, and then then we issue a letter, and we send out that letter, and the church rejoices. The church doesn't say, you know, well, um, okay, we'll study the Bible, and we'll check it out, and we'll see whether we totally agree, you know? Okay, this is the model that was left to the early church. It wasn't a model of each Christian deciding for himself by studying his Bible, it wasn't a model of every local congregation voting on a statement of faith. It was the model of a church that could speak with the authority of Christ. And, and I, what's I'm, funny, oh man, I, I wish I could, okay, I, I don't want to take us too far into the weeds, but it's also a model of how scripture and tradition and the magisterium function even in the book of Acts. Because yes. it says here, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, 
who themselves will tell you the same things right. by word of mouth. Yes, 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 yes. And they were meant to they were meant to uh, believe in that authority, even though what Judas and Silas exactly told them and the way they told them was not specifically written down and preserved in the pages of Scripture. Yeah, they probably elaborated a bit on it and, and whatnot. So again, hold fast to what we have told you, whether by word of mouth or in writing. Okay, but then that's the fifth argument. It makes sense that Jesus would found an authoritative church because this is the model that that the early church was given in the New Testament. And then the sixth argument and last today it made sense for me to believe that the church our Lord founded was an authoritative church or would be an authoritative church and that the Holy Spirit would work in a special way through the ordained leadership, the bishops, to provide that authority because I could see that this is how the early church seemed to have viewed itself and this is how the early church continued to function in the earliest centuries of Christian history. And so I ask you, how was the heresy of Arianism formally answered? Did every well, Christian work it out? No, they did not. They met as bishops. And this answers actually the objection that's probably already in some viewers' minds, and the objection that was certainly in my mind, which is, well, what do you mean the bishops decided this? There are bad bishops everywhere. Well, the yeah, bad bishops don't rule the day. The bad bishops are there in force. And it wasn't individual bishops that decided it again. It wasn't individual no. bishops. See, Individual Christians can go off on any tangent. Individual priests, individual bishops can go off, but that's not how it happened. In the first ecumenical council of Nicaea in 325 AD, it was all of the bishops in the world that could that could make it, all of the bishops in the world meeting together in Nicaea to hammer out an orthodox answer to Arianism. And thank God for St. Athanasius, who, whose ideas ruled the day. Okay, but a few more questions we should ask. How was the full equality of the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son defined as Orthodox Catholic teaching? Did each local congregation again work it out? I, you know, these rhetorical questions are important because they, they make us think. Did each Christian just figure it out? Again, it was at the Ecumenical Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. This is where the bishops met. This is where you have the great Gregory of Nazianzus and, and uh, Basil and whatnot, and this was hammered out. How about the New Testament canon, which you love to sort of hint at every single week, you know, the issue of the canon. But how was the New Testament canon formalized? It was at councils and synods of the Catholic Church in Rome, 382, Hippo, 393, Carthage in 397 and 419, and then confirmed after the Reformation when the when the reformers, you know, began to uh, you know Ch you know challenge the inclusion of the Book of James and yeah, some other and, things and the and the Old Testament books. So it was confirmed again at the Reformation. I mean, at the at at the Council of Trent in 1545, and then one more. How was the Christology of the Church defined and false views rejected? at the Council of Ephesus in 431, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. So in, in, in every case, we're looking at the first five centuries now of Christian history, and when it came to Arianism, Nicaea 325, when it came to the full stature of the Holy Spirit as divine, Constantinople in 381, when it comes to the canon of Scripture, it's Hippo and Carthage in Rome in 382, 393, 397, 419, when it comes to 
Christology. It's uh, the Council of, of um, excuse me, of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon. In, in five centuries, we see that when major issues that had begun to disturb the entire Christian world had to be decided, they were decided by the bishops meeting in councils to study, to pray, and to seek a solution. And this, my point is, this makes sense. It you makes know why else it makes sense? Because unless someone out there watching this is a Jehovah's Witness or part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints mm -hmm. or some non-Trinitarian sect or somebody who doesn't believe that Christ is truly God and truly man, every Christian listening believes in the conclusions of these councils. Every uh, yes. single one of them. They believe in the canon of the New Testament as established, um, that it is the breath of God under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Um, that yes. they, be they believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man. They believe in the Trinity. They believe all these things yeah. that you said, you know, 325, 391, hut, hike, whatever it was. You know, all these things, all Christians hold in common because even if we don't believe mm -hmm. in bishops and councils and churches, we believe in their conclusions. And these things unite all Christians to the point to where if Period. someone if someone if some new christian in a bible study stumbles, stumbles in one tuesday night and says you know i've been reading the the gospels and i don't really know for sure if jesus was god or i'm not sure the holy spirit was god it sounds like it was just sort of a spirit that comes from god you know they would be they would be told this is not christianity you know you have gone beyond the bounds of christianity when the and, southern baptist convention forms, this stuff is already assumed before they start yeah. debating other things, Yeah. right? Same with any other denomination except yeah. for maybe some of the more modern progressive ones who are doubting even the divinity of Christ. But even that, all the Christians who would consider themselves Orthodox Christians are like, no, 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 no. You can't just take stuff out of the New Testament. This is established. You can't just say that Jesus is not God. This is established. You can't just redefine the Trinity. This is established. So, and they're appealing to the church by doing so, whether they mean to or not. Yeah, yes, yes. So, in other words, it makes sense, given that these men, that is the bishops, that given that these are the men ordained to succeed the apostles in their ministry, and given the rule over the church, listen to how St. Paul describes the bishops of Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 28. Take heed to yourselves. He's speaking to the bishops as he was preparing to depart from them. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you guardians to feed the church of the Lord, which he obtained with his own blood. And we'll be coming back to this now more in the weeks to come. But just pile, pile this together, Matt, because this is what was coming into my mind. It makes sense that our Lord would have established an authoritative church because of the insane ways that the church is described in the New Testament because of the insane promises, beautiful, extraordinary promises that Jesus made to the church in the New Testament, because it's the only way, logically, that a unified church could ever exist, one church, because it's the only way, logically, that any individual Christian could ever be absolutely certain that what he possesses is the apostolic faith, because this is the model that the, that the New Testament leaves to us that is an authoritative church in which the Holy Spirit is leading the bishops. And then finally, because this is the way the church functioned. This is how the church thought of itself for hundreds and hundreds of years and met together in these great ecumenical councils to decide the most important foundational issues in Christianity. 
So we're going to come back to this, but let let me come conclude with this, Matt. I've used the analogy of light and lens in the past to describe the relationship between Scripture and tradition. Well, now we can complete the analogy. If we want to think of sacred Scripture as the light of God's inspired revelation, if we want to think of sacred tradition as the lens through which that light, the light of Scripture, is brought into focus, then Here's my question. Who is the I <laughs> in the analogy? Who is the I that is ordained to look through the lens of sacred tradition at the light of sacred scripture and present, bring forth the truth of the apostolic faith? Well, I'll tell you what that I would have to be. That I would have to be not above the word of God, but serving it. Yes. Right? The I would uh, have to teach only what has been handed on. Okay. Right? Um, it would have to listen to it devoutly, guard it scrupulously, and then explain it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit, drawing from that one deposit of faith, Ken, everything which it presents for belief is divinely revealed, which is exactly what it said in Dave Verbum <laughs> in that what? paragraph I, that you read at the beginning. I think that so. Seth should ring the bells right now. Okay. Well, don't ring him for me. Ring him for the Second Vatican Council. No, but that's my point, is you very trickily and uh, you, you very uh, surreptitiously and trickily just quoted from Dei Verbum again to describe what the eye would have to be. You're exactly right. And any eye that was not like that, any eye that was above the word and did not serve it, any eye that came up with something beyond what was handed on, any eye that yeah. was not guarding scrupulously the deposit of faith, it would be a bad eye, man. A bad eye. Like a bad ump behind the plate. It'd be like a pirate eye, you know, with a patch over it. Yeah, like a, like well, an like, eye, like looking through one of those like little. It'd be like a patch. Weird with sets a patch. of glasses. It, it, I mean, it would be like a, a pirate with a patch over both eyes. Yeah, or or something like that. You know, in a in a world that has patches over both of its eyes, the guy with only one eye patch is king. I think we should leave it at that. I think we should leave it at that. <laughs> Please do come and comment in uh, the online community, especially. <laughs> community. Well said. Well said. <laughs> community.chnetwork.org. That's where you can find us. We have it, these things posted on YouTube, so subscribe there. And they're posted in a few other places, as well as on um, various podcasting platforms. But if you want to get involved in the real discussion, come visit us at community.chnetwork.org or go to just plain old I'm sorry about this, Ken. chnetwork.org, and you can find over a thousand stories of people okay. like Ken and myself who have come to the Catholic faith from various backgrounds. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you again next week. Okay, bye, Matt. <laughs> <laughs>